Pod Clubhouse and decorating the set from Hollywood to your home with Beth Kushnick are pleased to announce our Frontline Workers Hero Appreciation Contest. Running from now until May 19th, the rules for the contest are simple. We want you to nominate the Frontline Worker Hero in your life and tell us why. That's it. That's all you have to do. The Frontline Worker Chosen will win a design consultation with interior designer to the stars and set decorator, Beth Kushnick. As well as a gift certificate sponsored by Raymore Flanagan to help put your design ideas into action. To nominate your Frontline Worker Hero, just head to podclubhouse.com and fill out the official contest form. See the post at Pod Clubhouse for all of the official rules and contest information. No purchase or payment is necessary to enter. Void where prohibited by law. Pod Clubhouse. So what can I do? Can I change? Why would you? Who wants to be average? No, <laughs> no. No, the trick is to make everyone think you're normal. Pretend to feel when you don't. Cry every now and then. Oh, if you can master that, my dear. The world is your oyster. Welcome to The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're discussing episode 11 of season two, You Can Run, dot, dot, dot. I love an episode with an ellipsis in it. It gets me very excited. What's coming next? Yes, it's very much a cliffhanger for you. Definitely. So You Can Run was written by Elizabeth Peterson and Jeremy Powell. This is actually the fifth Prodigal Son episode that Elizabeth has a writing credit on. Other significant episodes that she's written have been season one's Q&A and the season one finale, Like Father, which were both pivotal Ainsley episodes we refer to often when it comes to mm, her budding psychopathic tendencies. Yeah, I I like how the show, I mean, I don't know if this is coincidence or if we're just picking up on things or just making connections maybe where there are none, but the show all season long, by going over the episodes that the writers and the directors have done before, I feel like there are all sorts of parallels and continuing storylines that keep paying off with these writers. I mean, Q&A and Like Father... And and what the episode you're about to say are huge Ainsley episodes and huge Martin and his children episodes. So it can't be a coincidence. It can't be. Well, this has actually become like a fun little game that I go back and do is like to go see like, you know, even last week's episode was about like the Martin hallucinations with with Martin being in Malcolm's head. And the writers were ones who wrote significant episodes from season one where Malcolm was having some head trauma and Martin hallucinations. So I just I'm liking the, the synergy if it's intentional or not i don't know but maybe we're picking up on these little breadcrumbs that they're leaving for us chris and sam if you guys are listening we're picking up what you're putting down and we're digging it well we are the surgeon files and we did get that shout out and i'm going to say for every every episode from now until the end of time you're so (laughs) funny all right what's the other episode significant episode that elizabeth peterson has written she also wrote Take Your Father to Work Day from season two here. Our Michael Potts interview episode. Yes. As far as Jeremy Powell goes, this is actually his first writing credit. Previously, he was credited as working in the script and continuity department. And the episode was directed tonight by Marisol Adler, her first for this series. About Take Your Father to Work Day, not only did we interview Michael Potts when we did that episode, which was a ton of fun, but that was a pivotal episode in Martin's Exodus plan. It was also the return of Ainsley. She had taken an episode off 
off episode three. She had been gone. And then we see her back. She's working in her father's study. It's the first time we really see her down there, I think, if I remember correctly. That's where she's talking to Malcolm and really filling him out about what happened with Endicott, where you get the first where we got the first feeling that she actually had started to remember things about killing him and was kind of testing her brother. It's also where she talks about doing part two of the interview with the surgeon. I mean, so many good payoffs for the Ainsley arc here. And it's also where we have a lot of this, where you and I discussed a lot about Martin being involved in his children's lives only when they were doing things that interested him. Mm-hmm. It's where Martin takes Malcolm to task and screams at him in that terrifying way about being the reason he's even in Claremont to begin with. I mean, really good family drama, really good Martin family drama in Take Your Father to Work Day. So again, another pivotal episode in the canon to this storyline written by uh, Ms. Peterson. Yeah, so it seems like all of these episodes that Elizabeth Peterson had written before are all resonating again tonight. I, I love that. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a fun game. It's great to see these kinds of through lines. It really connects season one to season two because I think on its face, they don't feel like they're connected, right? There was so much Junkyard Killer and then there was the Endicott aspect of season one and the girl in the box. And none of that is in season two, but all of the seeds and character development that began in season one is really blooming now in season two. And I think that is really important for the depth of the show, not just for the crime of the week, not just for the action part of the storyline, but understanding who these characters are and why they do what they do. I feel like all of these great nuggets from season one are all coming back now and being coming important in season two as season two comes to an end. And it just all feels very intentional at this point because of just like, you know, what we've been doing, you know, connecting the the writing to season one where that's happened. It, it feels very intentional and it's, it's just a really great way to develop these characters in a, not a sneaky, but in a, a very clever kind of a way. Cause you'd have to really go back and do your homework in order to connect these things and which we've done for you. But it's just a really great way to see how these characters develop. And really, like you said, the through line between season one, season two, they are connected in how they develop the characters. Speaking of characters and speaking of one character that we lost tonight, rest in peace. Friar oh, pour Pete. one out. Pour, pour one, one out, out for, for the psychotic friar, the hankering for murder and flailing, flaying people. Uh, stick around to the end of tonight's episode because we have a great interview with Friar Pete himself. Christian Borrell is joining us for the first time on the podcast to discuss his time on the show as Friar Pete. Uh, it was a fun discussion. We got to talk about not only his run as Friar Pete, but we also got into his other work that he's doing and, and uh, his time in TV and being on Broadway and what he what he's up to, what's coming next. He he teases out some really fun projects returning to broadway yeah it was a great little it was a great interview and uh really appreciative of his time really fantastic and before we get into the episode uh you should definitely check out the prodigal son spotify playlist that we've created it's some mood music to help you along as you wait the days in between the new episodes definitely adding mad world there's a couple of songs from tonight that are going to find their way onto there some really good music selections are coming your way So hang on your hats for Mad World, because we are going to definitely be talking about that song later on. You don't play it at the beginning, at the end, and play a little instrumental cue in the middle uh, for no reason. So we're definitely going to be looking at the lyrics and and why that song and how does it apply to Malcolm, because it's very much a Malcolm song. So definitely stick around for the old Mad World discussion. 
Uh, I think, again, this was a great week for our theories and discussions coming back and being proven correct. Not only did we say Ainsley was going to come back in a big way, she came back in a big way tonight. And also being the child that Martin turned to as well, which we also predicted. And we learned maybe in a kind of gross way, he was kind of grooming her for a while. Were you surprised to learn, not that she helped him, I think you and I both thought that that was the way it was going to play out. But the fact that he had initiated the contact by calling her on the the back phone in his office (laughs) and that they had been having secret meetings at claremont that seems like a huge thing going on when the cameras aren't rolling i was surprised that she was having these secret meetings with him just because she's really stepped back into herself these these last couple episodes that we've seen her in isolating herself more from the family so on its face i was a little surprised that she was having this contact with him and then, you know, understanding what he was doing with her. He was basically setting her up to be the one to help him when it busts, when he busted out, I felt because he was, he was seeing the distance from Malcolm. And I don't know what the timeline was with her seeing him in Claremont, but it didn't seem like it was very much. No, but I think Gil mentions that there were several visits of several, I think he says several secret visits and Claremont confirmed it. So, I mean, it was over a slightly prolonged period of time, but it does coincide with probably Malcolm doing his Martin cleanse, his the surgeon cleanse. And we talked about last week how he would turn to Ainsley because he couldn't get to Malcolm. You know, he was running clues through Jessica because he figured they would get to Malcolm. I think very much, and we'll talk about this later, the story about the apple farm he right. was he planted <laughs> apples planted uh, <laughs> with uh, with with uh with ainsley because he knew malcolm would make the connection and pick up on it as a clue and there's a whole discussion the breadcrumbs would lead back to malcolm right and a whole discussion so there's a whole discussion about why and i think i think that gets into a lot of what happens at the end of this episode so i want to hold on to that i want to keep our powder dry on that for a little bit uh, other things that we talked about and predicted came true there was dr capshaw commiserating with jessica also, I mean, to speaking of Dr. Capshaw, whichever way the relationship plays out, and I think you and I maybe have differing theories on this, which is going to be an interesting discussion. Vivian and Martin, definitely not done after last oh, week. definitely not done. Definitely mm-hmm. not done with each other. And obviously there's going to be more on that later. That takes up a lot of oxygen in the room uh, as this episode closes. Jessica and Dr. Capshaw, getting back to them. Did Jessica seek Vivian out the second time? She came back specifically looking for her, not only for Vicodin, but, you know, she came looking for her. But was it out of sincere concern for picking up that Vivian had been through something because of Martin? Or was it more just kind of morbid curiosity because she had seen them in the cell together and she wanted to maybe dig a little bit on what the relationship really was between Vivian and Martin? What was your take on Jessica's motivations there? It's a little from column A, a little from column B, but a little more from column B. I think she was more morbidly curious about what she saw when she encountered Martin in his cell and Vivian was so close to him because she was definitely closer than I'd say most humans have been to Martin in all those years. So I think it was more looking for clues as to maybe, you know, if she sees anything in Dr. Capshaw that she might have missed in herself in terms of her own personality. There was concern, but it was more what's the matter with you? Like what? And then maybe what's the matter with me? Like what did I miss all those years ago that you you might have as well. I I think I kind of agree with that. I think Jessica went back for the same reason Malcolm eventually believes Vivian in the end is because they had suffered at the hands of Martin 
over the years and in various ways. And so they saw in Vivian, they had seen that damage done to her. And so kind of, you know, people do this all the time. You see in others what you want to see and not necessarily what's actually there. And so I think Jessica saw a woman who had been hurt in some emotional way by Martin the way she had. And I think Malcolm saw in Vivian someone who had been lied to and manipulated by Martin in the same way Malcolm feels like he has been by his father. Both of them were projecting their Martin issues onto Vivian and reflecting back from her what they wanted to see. So I think I think that's why she goes back. That's my guess anyway. Plus Vicodin and 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 liquor. So. Yeah, the promise of Vicodin and the um delivery of liquor. Yeah. Uh, what, what, did our, what did our murder weapon tally look like tonight? I was trying to figure out on, a, on an ambulance what would have been something that they could have used to kill the EMTs. And I'm guessing they're like laryngoscope blades, the, the things that they would use to like trach a patient if they needed to. Those are the only things I could think of that would be big enough, sharp enough to kind of deliver that. Yeah, they definitely look like scalpel cuts uh, that were done in a very violent kind Jagged, of way. Yeah, very yeah, yeah. erratic and fevered kind of a way. For the bowling alley manager, I was thinking that there was a bowling ball involved, but I the guy the fact that his guy's like eyes were bulging, I was a little. Yeah, I don't I don't know a bowling by I being mean, a bowling ball is kind of a funny way to go, but I feel like Friar Pete would have maybe used his thumbs in the eyeballs and squeezed his head kind of like the mountain that rides in game of thrones something very medievalish. well i was thinking too that if he used a bowling ball as blunt force trauma to the back of the head it could have had some sort of like pressure impact on his eyes oh sure but i was also very upset that the indo-persian battle axe did not make an appearance i would have thought that you know friar pete would have taken a major shine to that battle axe yeah that seems like a real missed opportunity because clearly when they're raiding his apartment you got to think hector is grabbing the guns you know at least some of the four antique pistols and right. ammo uh but it turns out friar pete had one of them uh but yeah you for sure friar pete is grabbing the indo-persian battle axe that just yeah. seems seems to up his uh, wheelhouse on the bowling ball that i'm thinking about it there is a shot of from the pins point of view of the ball coming down the lane and i think they're at it's a it's a marbled colored ball i think but i think there actually may be a streak of blood on it oh no the the alley is bloodied like he's he's rolled that ball several times this bloody ball down several yeah times. so you're probably on the something it probably was used to whack and that's how the blood got on the ball which i i guess i guess blunt force trauma blunt force trauma fits in the friar pete wheelhouse of painful drawn agonizing. out agonizing painful death so yeah and then speaking of Fri- friar pete um there was a glock that took him out took him out with a giant fucking hole to his head whoa yo that was graphic yeah yeah i i was i was surprised at that entire scene that Same. not that not that she killed him no. but that she shot him in the head and they showed it we saw his brains leave his body yeah the blood the giant i mean it was a really big caliber hole in his head and we talk about this a little bit with christian he talks about the stunt work in the death scene and how he was essentially told to fall like a sack of bricks or a sack of potatoes and he does and and it, it, it the whole thing was just a very visceral visceral death uh and i i found i mean i had to watch this episode several times to get ready for the interview and ready for our recording i was taken back every single time and obviously i knew it was coming after the first time and i was still kind of like oof, like every time it was jarring and shocking each time that i had to see it 
And then they show the gaping hole. I was just like, wow, did not need that on top of just seeing what I just saw. That was a, a, a whole a whole lot of death. Yeah. Did you, I know you would appreciate this because you're kind of a murder fan. Did you notice how the bowling alley manager was posed in the uh, ball return? Oh, I did. It was the first thing I noticed. I was like, oh, there's Friar Pete because he was in the sign of the cross. I mean, the, it was the feet cross that gave it away for me. I was like, oh, oh. Okay. Uh, again, very Friar Pete-ish. And it's interesting. We Christian talks about that, too, in our interview. He, uh, you know, we asked him about the day of shooting those scenes. And the very first thing I think he actually says is he was impressed at watching how they posed the bowling alley manager. And they did the kind of ritualistic body positioning for that. So, I mean, even Christian goes, like, kind of, like, impressed and picking up on that. And he he refers to everything Friar Pete is doing as performance and, mm-hmm. and as really this performative action. And what, uh, what a way to prove that point than to go through the r- ritualistic styling of the of the body that is a i mean we've seen this before where malcolm shows up at a crime scene and he looks at a body and he you know it's uh, this was a performative death you know the, the, right. this was flair this was done with flair and i think that's what friar pete is trying to convey here too right if he didn't have the opportunity to take his time the way that he would have with some of his flayed victims this was going to be the next best thing to honor his craft his mo moving on to other characters just in general tonight this was uh, i think everyone really had great genuine heartfelt moments tonight everyone got we got to see everyone of our core group affected except for Adrisa, who's not in this episode, uh, sadly. We got to see everyone else in the core group be affected in some way by Martin's escape and the kind of chaos and stress that that's putting on everyone. I particularly want to give a shout-out to Frank Hartz and his performance as JT. That scene with Jessica is so wonderful. He's so full of empathy and vulnerability. Uh, Let me ask you, were you surprised that we came back around to the police overreach storyline and that we learned all that JT and his having just given birth wife have been through. I was actually happy that it came back. Not that the story is is a happy one at all, but just to know that he's okay in a way, right? I mean, what he said- I don't know that he's okay. I think he is dealing. I think he uh, is coping. I think, yeah, he's processing and he's, you know, dealing with it the best that he can and the best that his wife can. But the fact that they they brought it back up to kind of bring it full circle, I, I needed that. I needed to know that he wasn't being physically harassed. I mean, Brick's in his locker and threatening phone calls are, are probably worse, if not just as bad. At the same time, like I, I needed to have some sort of closure- I think on that story, even if this isn't the end of the story from what we hear, but I I needed to hear the next step, the next thing that was happening to him. And the fact that him and Jessica, who I would never have thought would have had sort of the same sympathetic leanings. um, I I like the fact that these two kind of bonded and kind of came together over this, this shared history, the shared trauma. I agree with you. I like that he was able, without having heard what was on the other end of that line, was able to tell the idea he knew he knew exactly what that kind of phone call was even if not the details and and i like how he delivers a line you know like i am a detective right. uh, but also just because he's going through the same thing and continue to go through i was surprised that they brought it back around happily surprised that they came back to it and again not that it's a happy thing but just the fact that there are repercussions that it's continuing on i love that he brings up the point you know and i didn't even file a fucking complaint which he doesn't right. say fucking because it's broadcast tv but you know 
he's thinking that. He's like, I didn't even, yeah. I didn't even take go after O'Malley like I could have, and I'm still getting this bullshit, you know? It's not even an official record kind of a thing. Right. I'm still being labeled this problem child. I, I like that because that seems real. Like, I was happily surprised that they came back around to the police overreach line because the show is just, again, showing that these characters are living lives even when they're not on screen. And I think that's important, again, to character development, to investing the audience into feeling, uh, into caring about these characters. You know, JT hasn't had a ton of things to do. He hasn't really had his own storylines. I mean, I feel like Adresa really has had more arcs than JT has had. And yet, scenes like this with Jessica really invest you in his character. It makes you feel when you think about this guy just wants to be a cop. He didn't even file an official complaint. He has a brand new baby at home. He's got a wife just given birth at home, presumably with the baby. And they're having to go through this bullshit bricks in a locker, death threats on the phone. Why? Why? For being for being black in the, you know, at nighttime outside of Malcolm's apartment. That's insane. But that's real, though. That's kind of what it feels like would be the thing that happened. And I'm glad that the show didn't back away from it. I'm glad that the show didn't forget about that's what this guy is going through. And I think that's important. And I give the show they didn't have to do that. I mean, there's so many things going on in Prodigal Son right now. They didn't have to have this scene. They didn't have to have this moment. They could have filled it with something else. But they did, and I appreciate them taking the time to show us that and to deepen JT and take us inside his life a little bit more and invest us in him. I mean, that makes me like JT more. It makes me invested in his life more. I care about him more now because I know what's going on in his life more. Absolutely. That's what I meant when I said I was happy that they brought it back because it didn't just go away. So the fact that they brought it back and they, they're, you know, moving that story along is what I thought was really important. But listen, all the characters this episode had moments that were tugging at my heartstrings. Jessica having to go through this all again, having dredging this up and getting these menacing phone calls. Gil feeling guilt over Ainsley being overlooked as a child. Danny is distancing herself from Malcolm. Martin, <laughs> Martin's trapped in a trunk, for God's sakes. Yes, I'm feeling bad for a serial killer. And Malcolm just broke my heart over and over this episode. The conversation he had with Danny about friendship, that Batman toy, dude, that Batman toy brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> and when he heard the gunshot, I was like, I'm just emotionally spent. I was with Dr. Capture on this one. I'm spent. Uh, that's a great line she has at the end. He took everything he needed from me and I'm spent. I mean, yeah. that's a that's a mic drop line that you need a Catherine Zeta-Jones to deliver and really sell. And, and I think she knocked it out of the park with that line. Yeah, I, I'm curious if there is a clue or metaphor in Jonas Salk and Polio and Martin Whitley. I haven't looked into it yet. This is something I'm going to do some research on for next week's episode. Because of all of the people Martin could have picked, all of the doctors, you would think his ego would have picked another surgeon, maybe. Someone that he is, someone on the Mount Rushmore of thoracic surgeons, something like that. Not that Jonas Salk and not that the cure, the vaccine for polio isn't significant. It's one of the medical, one of the most important medical breakthroughs of the 20th century. But it seems odd for Martin to pick Jonas Salk. So I feel like there's something there. I want to dig into it. I, I think the show just doesn't do things for no reason. So I'm very curious, unless you know, I, I feel like there's something hidden in there that I really, really want to, uh, to look up and uh, dig into a little bit more. 
I don't have anything obvious, but I, I think this is, let, let's do the same thing. We'll do each of our own research and next week we'll come back and we'll see what we found. Yeah, I think it'll still be a prevalent thing. I, you know, Martin is still, at least at the beginning of next week's episode, Martin's going to still be on the run. So I think it'll still be a, a germane conversation to have about what he was doing and why that name. Uh, yeah, I'm interested. I'm interested to do a little bit of learning and a little bit of digging. So uh, watch this space for more information on Jonas Salk as relates to Martin Whitley next week. And maybe there will be nothing and it will say there was nothing that we could find. And it was just the show being the show. But uh, I'm curious to see if there's something there, a a rabbit hole worth going down Uh, with that. I think we should get into the nitty gritty of this episode, watching this episode a couple of times. I I really viewed the entire episode or almost the entire episode as Malcolm versus fill in the blank because he was so rocked back on his heels. I I think he's putting so much pressure and anxiety on himself, almost feeling responsible for Martin getting out and not being able to find him super fast. I think he is feeling like everyone uh, looking at him, the walls closing in. I mean, he uses the phrase walls closing in on his father, talking about the crop dusting plane uh, as that escape plan for if the walls start to close in. I think Malcolm is feeling the walls closing in of his world because this is his worst nightmare come true. So for me, this episode was just Malcolm being against everyone and everyone being against Malcolm, at least as he perceives it. So let's start with Malcolm versus the three fugitives who I'm going to call the Claremont three. How did he do? Do you think with his profile of not only his father, which we'll spend plenty of time talking about, but I was interested in his profile of Friar Pete saying that being obsessed with ritual, that freedom wouldn't agree with Friar Pete for very long. And that Hector, because of his impulse control issues, that actually may encourage him or force him to stick with Martin's plan longer than anyone else because he wouldn't want to fuck it up. I think Malcolm gets an A for his profiling skills tonight. I think the A plus might be just for what we all missed at the end with Dr. Capshaw. He was on point tonight. He really figured out quickly that Martin would be the the planner. He would be the one directing the plan and that that Friar Pete, you know, would would not be okay with freedom. And all of everything that he said came to, to fruition. I thought he did really, really good. I think his I think his whole career was profiling for this moment. I I agree because I think Hector is the proof of his profile. Friar Pete goes down super fast because he doesn't try. He doesn't actually want, he just wants to be in this bowling alley sanctuary. And, And Malcolm's even still doing the profile when he's in there, when he's walking slowly towards Friar Pete. He's still doing the profile that this abandoned bowling alley in the Bronx or Westchester, uh, reminds him of a bowling alley from Pittsburgh, his first sanctuary. He knows Friar Pete better and better with every passing moment. And the fact that he falls so fast, it's it's they steal the ambulance, they steal the LeSabre. Friar Pete doesn't go any further than where the LeSabre is parked right outside of the bodega with the bowling alley across the street. That's not very far. Friar Pete not trying very hard to get away. Friar Pete was a town over. Yeah, exactly. Essentially. Right. I mean, right. But where Marshall, Marshall Reese kind of predicted most people will end up getting caught. Uh, it turned out to be true. And, and for the reason, though, I think that Malcolm said it would be true, that it was too much. It was overwhelming. He didn't actually really have a plan to do once he got out. It, it did not suit him. And he had to regress. He regressed to what was comfortable, a bowling alley. And he even says it when he's in the bowling alley talking to Malcolm. He says, you know, I spent more time here than in my living room. 
I mean, there's a dead body not too far away and he's still just, you know, he's just throwing pins and, and rolling the ball and he's drinking his third bottle of red wine, you know, right from the bottle. Like he's very relaxed. Now, granted, he's a sociopathic, psychopathic killer, probably doesn't get a very high heart rate when he kills. But I think it's more, yeah, this is just like where he is regressing into, you know, he's just climbing into himself. Please, almost like, please take me back somewhere. Either suicide by cop me or take me back to Claremont. This was a horrible, horrible mistake. I should not have left. Right. And there's ritual in bowling, right? You have to go through the steps. You have to go through the wind up, the follow through. So for him, this, this was where his comfort zone was. And there was no, there was no getting out of this for Pete alive. Very unlikely, because I, I, I imagine if you asked him, even understanding, even if he understood about himself that he didn't actually like being free, I think if you had said to him, well, let's just go back to Claremont, just you don't have to be free, you go back there, I think he would have still said, no, no, I don't want that either, which only leaves death. Death by Glock in this case. And then you have Hector, who takes the plan, Martin's plan, very, very far down the line. You know, he gets all the way to the 1990, since 1994 established, like, this, you know, escape route. Presumably, at some point, he would have been getting on that plane, you know, and trying to fly it to Canada. He followed Martin's instructions. He killed the ambulance drivers. He got the ambulance. He stole a car, you know, dumped the ambulance, stole a car, got right. cash, got food, moved on, went Went to the next plan. I mean, he followed the plan that Martin laid out better than anyone. Malcolm dead on with his profile. And despite the the duress that he was under, I mean, you know, like let's let's divorce the fact that you know he's a profiler, and this is you know three serial killers on the run. His father is one of them, right? So the stress level for him is just ratcheted up and the tremors were on display here. He still stuck to it. And even though JT was like, you know, at him when they found the ambulance, he stuck to his profile. He wasn't deviating from it. So I was happy that Malcolm was so confident in his skills and that it paid off so well for him. Do you think Friar Pete would have killed Malcolm if Ruiz had not intervened? This is like the million dollar question for me right now. I think he would have tried to kill him through blunt force trauma i don't think he would have shot him i think malcolm was right i think malcolm was just on a winning streak with his profile and i think he had friar pete down i would have been if you had told me as it turned out that gun wasn't even loaded i would have believed you i think the gun that hector had would have been loaded for sure because those are weapons that hector with his impulse control you know he's going to use any weapon he can to exact violence Friar Pete committed to his ritual. He would have found some other way to get at Malcolm or would have tried some other way, like throwing the bowling ball. Like he could have pulled the gun first, but he threw the bowling ball first or was it the bottle of wine? What did he throw? No, it was bowling oh, ball. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He throws the bowling ball first. Like that's his go-to is the blunt object, not right. the gun. That's who Friar Pete is. So no, I don't think he would, I don't think he would have shot him. The question for me is if he had lived, would he have given up Martin and where Martin was? What do you think about that? You know, I don't know because we find out from Hector later that, you know, he never made it to the ambulance. I don't know if Pete was present enough to have given up that information. He was very much living in the past. Just by finding the bowling alley, you know, the line that, he, you know, my father wasn't angry. He was furious. He was not 
in a present mindset. And Malcolm was just agitating him. So I don't know if Pete would have given up any information on Martin or Hector. I'm not convinced that that Pete was in an element where he could rationalize questions enough to 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 think about the present. He was definitely somewhere else. And I think there's something to the fact that if we're saying he didn't want to go back to Claremont, he wouldn't have been in a mood to have been deal-making. There would have been no carrot for him to give up information on Hector or Martin unless he had felt wronged by them or wanted to spite them in some way. You know, like so many so many people, uh, but, but certainly so many villains in stories and, and certainly serial killers, they have a code, right? Everyone, they've got their own code, no, a code that no one else necessarily follows, but they've got their own code. They've got their own uh, standards to live by, their own rituals. Something tells me that Friar Pete would have only given up Martin or Hector if they had violated his code of conduct in some way, I don't think he would have otherwise given them up. I, I don't think he would have given them up because it wouldn't have gained him anything. He wasn't looking to go back to Claremont. I, I think he welcomes Ruiz's bullet, even if he wouldn't have been able to admit that or say that out loud. That was preferable, I think, for a Friar Pete type versus going back to Claremont. You know, freedom yeah. wasn't the answer, but going back to Claremont wasn't the answer either. Right. So where is he? Where is he left? Right. Lane four. Let's talk about Michael Andrews' Mad World, which is used several times in this episode. It plays at the beginning during the 1998 flashback. It plays at the end of the episode when Malcolm, we get the slow-mo reveal that it was Hector shot in the arm or shoulder, not uh, Martin. And in between that, when Malcolm pulls the Batman figure out of Martin's go bag, stashed presumably since 1998, an instrumental cues up of that, just some bars of it faintly play on the soundtrack, which I thought was a really nice touch. So why? Why three times... In this episode, why three times when Malcolm is thinking of his father? I want to read you some of the lyrics from the song, and I think I think there's some clues here. I think there's some explanation in what the song is about. I'm going to start kind of in the middle. It goes, uh, hide my head. I want to drown my sorrow. No tomorrow, no tomorrow. And I find it kind of funny, and I find it kind of sad. The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you. I find it hard to take when people running circles in a very, very mad, mad world. Mad world, mad world. Children waiting for the day they feel good. Happy birthday, happy birthday. And I feel the way that every child should. Sit and listen, sit and listen. Went to school, and I was very nervous. No one knew me. No one knew me. Hello, teacher. Tell me what's my lesson. He looked right through me. Looked right through me. Clearly, Malcolm is feeling all sorts of torn, I think, about his father. And I think that's the struggle we see on his face. I think that's the importance of the Batman figurine. And I think that's the importance of the song. It's this idea that the dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. Martin is his father. Martin is a monster. Martin is a sociopath. Martin is a serial killer. Martin is also his father. 
all of those things are true all at the same time and he can't escape them and i think the lie the idea of this is my nightmare but yet it's still the best thing i got going is the crux of why this song plays he doesn't want martin to die he the idea that ruiz and her marshals are going to kill martin kills malcolm i think he's i think he is distraught over the idea of losing his father in a permanent way no matter how angry or disgusted or repulsed he is by martin and his actions what do you think of that is that that, am i just am i just looking too deeply into the use of a song here or is there something there I heard in the beginning and I was like, okay, that's great. Love this song. And it's going to play great in the, in the playlist. But then when he was running into the house after the gunshot and it it came back again, I, and I picked up on the bars when he found Batman in the go bag. But when I was listening to the lyrics again, I'm like, this is written for Malcolm. Like this song, the way that they've used music in this show, it's always so intentional. And this one, I was just like, when he ran into the house, I was just like, oh man, listening to this, the dreams in which I'm dying are the best I ever had. That's where he's like, Martin's always in my head. And how many times that was repeated this episode? Martin says it to him in the very beginning, you know, if you ever need me, I'm right here. He points to his head points right to, you know, right where the memory cortex is. All throughout this episode, he kept saying, he goes, you know, usually he's in my head and I got nothing. It's silent. Right. But hearing this, hearing the lyrics, like just even you reading them now, it's very difficult to reconcile what you said because his father's a monster, His, but it's his father. His father's a sociopath. It's still his father, still a serial killer. So he's got the worst of everything going on in him. It's his job to hunt down his father. Like, this is an untenable position for somebody who's already so mentally fragile. The lyrics, the song choice, just the dreamy kind of ethereal floatiness of the, the, the melody of the song. It's a very powerful punch that comes to you three times throughout this episode. Like, you get set up in the beginning in 1998. Then when he finds the Batman toy, I was just like, first of all, I was like, go us for being good TV watchers and figuring out in the podcast last week that there would be a go bag 25 years in the future ready to go. But... Him finding the Batman toy that him and Ainsley squabbled over, listening to this where people run in circles. And there was another line. What was it? Oh, when it was school, I was very nervous. No one knew me. And I, and I hearkened back to the conversation with Danny. I never had a friend like you. Like, I never had a friend. And he's telling her this. And it was just so, so poignant to come back. And then hearing that lyric being said, I was just, and then like they, they cut over to Danny at one point. It was very well stitched together the way that they edited it for the song, for the lyrics, for the the significance of what was going on. In in just those couple of seconds, all of this is playing out. It's just I thought it was brilliant. We can't underestimate or overlook the part of the song that that you were just uh, alluding to. Went to school and I was very nervous. Instead of school substitute, I went to the NYPD and I was very nervous. No one knew me. No one knew me. Hello, teacher. Teacher is Gil. Tell me what's my lesson. He looked right through me, looked right through me. Uh, The idea being that Again, Martin is this monster, but also his father and also the only one Malcolm really thinks understands him because he understands Martin. They are the same in so many ways, at least from Malcolm's point of view. They really truly are very similar people. Even Gil, who has been a father figure to him for 20 years, even Danny, who has made such a, uh, inroads in trying to be close to Malcolm, understand Malcolm, get to know Malcolm in a real way. At the end of the day, Malcolm feels... I go to school. I'm nervous because I don't know how to have a friend. I don't know how to be, quote unquote, normal in this world of normal people. 
And when I get there, my teacher, my father figure, my friends, these people I work with, they just look right through me. They don't see me. They don't understand who I am. Malcolm is in a very tough spot here. He is he's being forced to hunt the one person that he probably and truly feels closest to, no matter how hard he struggles to not feel that way. He's definitely got to like walk this line of like what's healthy for him in dealing with Martin, this Martin cleanse that he's gone on recently yeah. but now having to hunt him down he's he's just in the worst place possible let's get to malcolm versus the team and continuing this idea of malcolm versus fill in the blank let's go to malcolm versus his team uh, i want to start with malcolm being aggressive at the ambulance being overly defensive of himself is that him being overly defensive or is jt coming at him it, it almost felt like all of the work malcolm has done to build a relationship and trust with the team really got flushed down the toilet. Now, you and I disagree on Danny, but certainly there is a distance and a cooling between JT and Malcolm and even Gil and Malcolm demonstrably Mm -hmm. in this episode. Was it Malcolm being unnecessarily overly defensive or is it or is jt being like yeah i knew it was just a matter of time before you became a mouthpiece for your psycho father kind of thing i was taking this as malcolm is sticking to his profile because it's right and they're wasting time arguing with him Uh, well jt says or maybe you're just making up things because you want to you know defend your father or paint your father in the best light possible that's not cool if you're really Malcolm's friend or even a colleague that you respect him. If you respect Malcolm's profiling ability, you're not going to cast aside what he's saying here, which makes sense. There are three murderers on the loose. It's a valid profile that he's giving you. But JT is just wants to JT just wants to almost like he's been waiting a season and a half to say, I told you so. I, I told you Malcolm is is a loose cannon that was always going to become a shill for his father and, and be just like him. I was surprised, but also not surprised that JT it pulls the ice, the ice wall down first. But there's definitely a chilling that begins here at the ambulance scene for sure. Well, you know, JT's under the gun too you know they're trying to find the serial killer and you know he's going to stress malcolm to make sure that he's telling the truth yeah he's going to challenge malcolm because now a year and a half 31 episodes are on the line here and it's like have you been bullshitting us from the beginning or are you really one of us so i think he really needed to to stress malcolm to the point and to to make sure that malcolm is telling them the truth because if malcolm's just covering for his dad JT's a detective. He said it earlier in the episode that he's going to figure out things because just of the nature of his job. So I think this was a way for him to, you know, to really come come at Malcolm to make sure to stress the situation and make sure that he's telling them the truth. Let's talk about Gil because Gil sees Malcolm's hand tremors. He sees how bad they are in this episode. And, and Gil, I mean, Gil goes along with Malcolm. He goes out to the apple orchard with him. But there is that scene early on when they realize that Martin would have gone to Malcolm's apartment because of where they were located. It was the closest to get weapons and and other sundry items that they're going to need. When they go in and they see that the place had been ransacked, he says something essentially, maybe you should, you know, if your father was the surgeon, maybe you should have fortified your apartment a little bit better. seems like a real fucking low blow on Gil's part at that point to say that. Like, that's a snotty comment that did not need to be said. If you're this guy's friend, if you're this guy's mentor, if you're this guy's father figure, if you have any sympathy for the stress that he must be under, you see his hand shaking like a leaf on a tree. That's the comment you're going to come at. 
Come on, Gil. Come on. Let, let's do Malcolm a little bit better here. Again, same kind of with JT. It was like a freezing, you know, it was, I, it was almost like I have to have you along here because you do know the surgeon better than anyone, but also I feel icky being around you. That was the vibe I was getting from JT and Gil a bit with Malcolm tonight. Like you are now a liability more than a help in some ways. Yeah, that comment about fortifying the apartment. Well, I mean, you know, he's been under lock and key for 23 years. Why would I need to fortify my apartment any more than it is? Yeah, it was a super low blow. It was a super low blow. But then he he defended Malcolm to Marshall Ruiz in a very forceful kind of a way and to Ainsley as well. So where is Gil here? Is he torn? If someone is defending you behind your back in the same way someone has the courage to say shit about you to your face, I think those are both two sides of the same coin that they probably respect you and they probably like you or at least respect you enough to be honest with you. And I think that's what Gil is doing here. You know, he's pressing Malcolm hard, even though he knows Malcolm has a very tenuous grasp on reality, yet he is you know, defending him to Ainsley about, you know, everyone always suspects Malcolm. He's defending Malcolm to Ruiz when she insinuates that he doesn't care about the safety of the family being held hostage. That I like that Gil is doing that, but I don't like that Gil is making shitty comments to Malcolm. Easy comments that what is Malcolm supposed to do? You know, why would he fortify his apartment? Like, that's just a shitty comment to say. It's a real low blow. It's like a, it's like a punch in the kidneys kind of comment that Malcolm right. didn't need at that point. Come on, Gil. Keep it, keep it together a little bit this is your keep it above the belt this is your father figure this is your son this is your figurative son this is you know this is why malcolm feels like you're looking right through him because you're saying shit like you should have fortified your apartment a little bit better but meanwhile behind my back you're defending my character which he doesn't know malcolm doesn't know all malcolm knows is what he's hearing in to gill's face no one is going back to malcolm at this point and being like you know gill's really got your back there you know ainsley's not saying to malcolm oh he really put me in my place when i said that no one ever suspected you you know like no one's doing that ruiz is certainly not doing that it is a mad world my friend we uh we saved her for last because i think you and i disagree so let's talk about malcolm and danny let's listen to this clip uh see what's going on here that's not enough you almost took a bullet why for the surgeon for a killer who has done nothing but make your life a living hell i can't believe that i have to say this but He's not worth it. You know that, right? Tell me you know. I do. I do. Sorry. I know being my friend can be... Actually, I guess I don't know what that's like. Never had a friend like you before. Me neither. Mine was a compliment. Was yours? Jury's still out. Now, tell me and the listeners why you, what your feeling is about Danny and Malcolm in this episode. I, I just felt that she was like coming to terms with the fact that if she has feelings for this guy, he is like nothing she's ever seen before. And now she's starting to see that it might not be in a good way. I think she thought that he was insanely reckless. She punches him in the bowling alley as she's getting him away from Ruiz because he's incensed after Pete drops to the floor. She punches him like to move him away. 
and like pushes him out and pushes him out. So she's like, she's incensed that he would put himself at such risk for a multitude of reasons. I mean, I know she cares about him, but I feel that she's doing some sort of self-reflection here in this conversation with him. She's not looking at him when she talks about the, the friendship thing. She's looking at him when, you know, she's saying, you know, the surgeon's not worth it. But I just don't think that she's feeling the same way about Malcolm that she was maybe an episode or two ago. I could not disagree with you more. Really? I, I I am as 180 degrees from you and my take in this episode. I think Danny, including Malcolm, is the only one who is still defending Malcolm here. There's even a scene before this where uh, right after Malcolm briefs the bullpen of Marshalls and then they're outside and he's like, you know, they're right about what they're saying about me. Danny's the only one, including Malcolm, who's standing up for and understanding the to Malcolm, the pressure he's under, the stress he is under, the fact that... well, that's all before the bowling alley. Okay, well, fair. But even in the scene that we just played, she's trying to convince him, like, your life has value. You are a worthwhile person. The surgeon is not worth you dying for. That's not someone shunning him. That's someone who's trying to shake him and remind him that there will be people that would miss you if you were dead. I am one of them. When when she makes the comment, you know, he says, mine was a compliment, was yours. And she kind of laughs and she, well, she, she kind of sardonically chuckles and she says, you know, the jury's still out on that one. That's not a, that's not a, her reconsidering her feelings. I took it as a rebuke of, of her like feelings toward him. I, I don't. I, I think she's she's in for a penny. She's in for a pound for Malcolm. I think that's a scene where she just can't understand why he values his life so little when she values his life so much more than that. And it's it's constantly because she knows what it's like to have difficult family troubles. She knows what it's like to go through hard, hard times to lose people that are close to you. You know, she's opened up to him that way more than anyone, maybe other than Jessica uh, and, and Ainsley, I think she really, really empathizes, not sympathizes, but empathizes with Malcolm and the feelings of lack of self-worth that he has, because I think she's been there. And it's hard when someone doesn't care about themselves, when someone when someone is reckless with their life and you see it and they don't, or at least they don't see it enough to make different decisions. It's painful, but she's doing what she has to. She's sitting there, you know, shaking him, you know, metaphorically, if not literally, trying to get him to continue to live. I think she is the only one who is is trying to remind him of his self-worth, that he is not his father, that he is not the surgeon. He is Malcolm Bright, not Malcolm Whitley. And no, yeah, I, I think I think this episode is is Danny f- doubling, tripling down on her friendship, the, removing the romantic aspect of it, uh, doubling, tripling down on her friendship to Malcolm and trying to show him that he needs to stay alive because people would miss him otherwise. I think this was more like his trauma on display in a way that we haven't seen prior to this seeing how reckless and how careless he is with his own self-worth and his own well-being that's where i'm coming at more from this is that she's just like oh i don't know i don't know about this i don't buy that though we've seen him do more dangerous things than what he did here the the show has been littered with him being reckless with his life in other ways i think it was heightened in this episode because it was involving 
recapturing the surgeon who is now on the loose. But pound for pound, what he was doing in front of Friar Pete, the way he was taunting him, Malcolm has done super reckless things before with his life that Danny is often the one that catches him doing. Think about the what he's doing in the sex dungeon earlier in this season. The bomb, the cutting off the arm, the exploding grenade, and then, you know, shooting the antique gun and jumping out of the window onto the car. Those are far more reckless. Gil's car. Onto Gil's car, right. I mean, <laughs> Malcolm has littered this show with extreme, extreme reckless behavior for his life. Danny is taking him to task here because she sees him doing it at the expense of capturing Martin. And she's trying to say to him, your life is worth more than the surgeon's life. Your life is worth more than capturing the surgeon. That's what she's trying to convey to him here. She's being the best friend that he's got in this episode. Uh, interesting. I'm curious what other people think. If you guys have an opinion, you should definitely let us know. Uh, you know, drop us a line in the Facebook groups that we're in that we post in. Drop us a line at podclubhouse.com. Drop us a line at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We've talked a lot about Ruiz and the Marshalls, but we actually haven't talked about Malcolm versus the Marshalls. So let's get to them. What's your take on U.S. Marshal Emily Ruiz, played by guest star April Hernandez Castillo? What's your what's your Sheila hot take? I couldn't decide if I wanted to go have a drink with this badass boss lady or give her a punch in the face. (laughs) She was very, I thought, very inappropriately funny. Uh, when she made the joke in the beginning, like she came, she came off as giving me a very bad taste in my mouth from the outside. I'm like, you didn't come off as professional, but she she redeemed herself when she made the joke about, you know, not knowing that Malcolm and Martin were related and, and the exasperation on Gillen and Malcolm's face. I, I didn't like that, but I did appreciate her take charge mentality. She's no nonsense, you know, when it comes to her job. But I just didn't like the cavalier way in which she approached it in the beginning. I want to play this scene because I am genuinely stumped at what is being said here. What is Malcolm accusing her of? I have an idea, but I'm curious what your take it is. I'm curious what your take is on it. I'm curious what the audience take is on it. Let's listen to this uh, scene from the bowling alley and then talk about it a bit. He was about to tell me where my father is. Are you certifiable? He was about to shoot your brains out. Right, I saw too. He was going to kill you. You want to be reckless with your own life, fine. But you just gambled with every innocent life in this area. That's not okay with me. It's my job to find my father, isn't it? It's hard to do that if you blow his accomplice's head off. It is your job to find the surgeon. And whether we do that peacefully depends entirely on him. And not at all on how you feel. Of course you would say that. Excuse me? What's your take on that exchange? What is Malcolm accusing her of there? I think he's accusing her of not taking the entirety of the situation into into account, meaning that he's delivering a profile professionally and he's trying to stick to that. And I think she's bringing in the fact that he's related to Martin somehow, like that his cavalier attitude is because of Martin somehow and that he's going to be reckless in order to risk people's lives in the in the beginning outside the bowling alley in that area where like if Pete's out in the run kind of a thing. So I'm not really certain why he's coming at her this way. I don't know if she's not giving his profile the due credit. Yeah, I agree. My take was that he felt that she 
she wasn't appreciating his profile and by saying that his feelings don't matter was somehow dismissing his profile because his feelings and understanding who Martin is, whether it's Martin, his father or Martin, the surgeon, his feelings are wrapped up in the idea of trying to capture Martin, that you need Malcolm and his profile to do that. And Malcolm's profile of his father involves Malcolm's feelings about his father. They're, they're a li- they're like, you can't excise them. You can't untangle them. Right. And that she's just so committed to the law and order aspect of capturing the surgeon. She, that she's not appreciating the nuance. Maybe, I, I think maybe he's calling, he's essentially calling her kind of like a, like a Neanderthal. She's like, textbook and he's nuance. Yeah, exactly. Like she's not right. Like, like that's what I meant by like a Neanderthal. Like she can't appreciate the nuance of the profile silence. And I think uh, science, and I think that's why she's like, the fuck you say? And like, right. kind of goes at him because I think that's exactly what he was essentially, which is a weird dynamic because you don't usually see, a male say that to a female in a power position in TV shows. Right. And I like the show. I like that the show did that, right? You don't get a lot of women being called Neanderthal, you know, yeah, essentially, yeah, and essentially, you know, being like, you know, you, me have gun, me shoot bad guy, you know? And, and I think that's kind of like, that's usually the guy trope, right? The guy cop trope. So it was interesting, Malcolm calling her that. And you then understand why she understands what he's saying. And, and is like, I'll show you, you know, like I'll show you nuances. I, you know, be, beat the snot out of you. You reckless son of a bitch. I understood he was a Accusing her and his tone is nasty and his tone is dripping kind of with venom in a way that we never really see Malcolm get. Malcolm never really gets malicious and he he's talking to her in a malicious tone. I really wanted to break it down. I wanted to play it again and I've, I've listened to it so many times because... I think that's what they're saying. I think that's what they're getting at. And and it's interesting because I think it shows... Why is it important? Because I think it shows Malcolm breaking in a way that no matter how stressed he ever gets, I don't think we've ever seen him so close to breaking, even with his profiles being so accurate in this episode. I don't know that we've ever seen him so close to emotionally breaking as he also is in this episode. Because he doesn't treat, He doesn't treat people the way he's treating her in the scene. He certainly doesn't treat professionals the way he's treating her in a scene and i think that's where the significance comes in so malcolm plays this voicemail for gil and ruiz but he doesn't play the whole thing specifically not the i hope you find me part what is the significance there for you I think it's just that Malcolm is willing to share, but not share everything. I think, I think he's aware of the optics of this. I, well, I think it's two things. I think it's, he's aware of the optics of, I'm this guy's son. Everyone's already going to be kind of staring at me and suspect of me. Lord knows he's seeing it with the marshals in the bullpen. He's seeing it with JT. I mean, JT is essentially accusing him of it at the ambulance. So I think it's part of that. He doesn't want to bring any more additional heat onto himself. But I think there's a part of him, and this kind of echoes what he says to Vivian at the end of the episode, there's a part of me that thought he wanted me to find him. In some ways, again, it's the mad world. It's the Batman figure. It's, this guy is a monster, but he's also my father. And this part of the voicemail is just for me, his son. The idea that I'm the only one who can find him um, because we're the same. 
that's personal, you know, and, and it's not obviously it's evidence. It is part of the criminal search and Malcolm should be sharing that information, whatever the repercussions of that are, but he can't, he, he, he can only separate himself from being Martin's son for so, uh, so much. And I think sharing that part of the voicemail was a step a little too far uh, for him. You know, he, the idea that he's the one who can find Martin is something he needed to keep private. What was your take? All of that, yes, I agree with. But I also took it as well, if he had shared that part of the voicemail, that this would be his ticket off the case. That they would be like, what are you not sharing with us? What does that mean? I just think it would bring a level of heat and a level of distrust that he would not be allowed to be on the case. It would just be too much of a conflict of interest. And then there would be so much calling into question his motives. You know, is he looking, is he really, like what JT was saying, the line of questioning and the line of track that JT was on, like, are you really trying to find him? Or are you just leading us on, on a wild goose chase? Like, great, we took out Pete, but there's still two more dangerous fugitives at large. Are you really helping us? I think it would have just become this conflict of interest that they would have been like, and you're out. You can do this from the precinct. In the same vein of Malcolm being rude to a professional in the bowling alley, being rude to, you know, Marshall Ruiz, Malcolm's usually very good about referring to Martin, especially in mixed company or in a police setting. He's very good about referring to Martin as the surgeon. Mm -hmm. This episode, he is almost always calling him my father, my father, my father. He's calling it to Gil. He's calling it to the cops. He's calling it to Ian. everyone. It's it's he's lost the separation line. Gil even says that to Ainsley, like you and your brother tend to, you know, lose the distinction, which is not true. Malcolm is usually very good about the distinction in this episode. At this particular time, he's very bad about making the distinction in his mind. It's very much. I need to find my father. He's lost it that he actually needs to find the surgeon. Is this a sign, another sign of him breaking that he maybe shouldn't be on this case? Is he too close to it? Is it breaking him to a point that he won't be functional? He's not being unprofessional, I don't think, when he's saying that he's his father. I think it's also connecting him to the case that there's a veracity to what he's saying that needs to be taken seriously, that he's finally accepting in some ways that out loud to the world, yes, I am his son and I am in the best position possible to find him because I've studied him my whole life. I think like him. He said early on, I think he said, I think he said in the pilot, because I watched it recently, he said to Danny, he goes, I like to think about it from the position of the killer. So I think we use this term too a couple episodes ago. There's an unconscious bias here that's that's coming out that he's acknowledging the fact that Martin is his father and that he's poising himself as the best person possible to find him. And also by sharing this information, it removes the illusion that they might be trying to hide something, right? He's not Mal Malcolm Whitley, he's Malcolm Bright. So by him saying his father is also a way to give him a, a degree of credibility so that nobody can say it after the fact, oh, you hid like the marshals in the bullpen. By him saying his father, it gives him the credibility to know that we, we recognize the relationship and he's here to help in the best way possible. I think we're getting to the good stuff now. Wait, wait, this hasn't been the good stuff? Uh, well, exactly. I mean, that's, I think, how good this episode is. You know, in a lot of ways, this episode was so much more sedate than last week. But as far as table setting goes, as we speed towards the final two hours of the season, this was a really pivotal episode. It was a really important episode. It really, it, like, last checks before the final ride 
really took you where everyone is. You know, you're there. I don't think everyone's in the final positions for the finale. That'll be next week's episode. But yeah. this was everyone doing like check your pockets, make sure you have everything you need. We're not going to take any more rest area breaks before the finale. That's what this episode was. Like buckle up, Buttercup. We're going exactly right, 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 right. No more. That is not stopping anymore for gas. You know, we're not getting any more slurpees on this trip. You know, and I think that was Malcolm checking in with everyone, taking, getting everyone's temperature. That's going to be necessary. For for the finale that's what this episode was uh, and an important player in that is ainsley so i think we need to talk about malcolm versus ainsley let's listen to this audio clip this is actually ainsley and her father so what can i do can i change why would you who wants to be average <laughs> no no the trick is to make everyone think you're normal pretend to feel when you don't cry every now and then Oh, if you can master that, my dear. The world is your oyster. With that in mind, and the show, in the language of television, the show is showing us that while Malcolm is trying to talk to her and ask her why she's not being fully truthful, pump her for information on these secret visits that we've learned to Claremont, trying to find out why are you the only phone number, you know, dad's old office number, the only phone number in Friar Pete's cell phone. He's asking her all these questions, trying to get through to her. We're seeing her have these flashbacks to the visit uh, visits. So the question is now, is she being sincere when she is acting worried about maybe becoming just like their father? Is that genuine concern or is that just her employing Martin's lessons on showing a tear every now and then faking sympathy appear quote unquote normal? What's your take as the, as the episode laid it all out for us? She's already gone over the side of psychopath. She's now trying to walk back into the world of appearing normal. The the wiping away the tear is what did it for me. Before I even knew what came later, I was like, Ainsley, where are you going with this? She is not able to emote the way that well-adjusted non-psychopathic people emote. She's looking for her way out in this conversation with Malcolm. She's trying to figure out how to weasel her way out of his profile and not have him understand what else is going on. Until she has to. And she does. And, and she does because then she she starts to try and atone for how nasty she was to Malcolm. And that's all Malcolm needs to switch gears. And and Malcolm, Malcolm, for as good as he can be, gets so easily distracted by his father, by Ainsley, by Vivian, by just some simple, well pointed questions at just the right time. There was an episode earlier on the season where Malcolm is starting to zero in on the idea of the, the ID cards, uh, the swipe cards. Mm -hmm. And Martin derails his entire line of thinking by asking him a question about, I think it was the case that they were working on because Martin knows Malcolm's psyche and knows that if I ask this question right here, it's like, it's like a cartoon where a, a train is going down the tracks and there's a turn coming up. If you just pull the switch at right moment, the tracks will switch and the train will go off in the other direction into, into safety land, into safety, yeah. right? Right. That's a trick we've seen Martin use with Malcolm. And it's a trick that he is now taught to Ainsley and she employs it by by directing it away from my visits with dad to I was so bad to you. 
which then puts Malcolm on the on the end of having to defend his sister's shitty actions. You were stressed. You were under pressure. I've lived with dad's, you know, uh, we're the same bullshit for so long. All of that. That uh, Malcolm is sitting there defending his sister to his sister. That's a masterstroke of manipulation. She's taking lessons from the master and she might end up being better than him. Which is what we saw in the dream, right? And when uh, Malcolm has his elevator hallucination, yep, and they're, gather- right. they're gathered around the dinner table, and we learn that Ainsley has become a doctor, a surgeon like her father. Martin says at the dinner table in their little Norman Rockwell dinner, she says he- she's become even better than me. I agree with you. I think Ainsley is the chosen one. She's the Anakin Skywalker of the Prodigal Son universe. Right. All her midi-chlorians are right. I mean, yeah. And Malcolm no longer has the high ground, Anakin. So <laughs> uh, we, we just lost all of the listeners. Except Sorry, for- we're bringing it back. We're bringing it back. Yeah. So I have a, qu- a couple of questions here that remain unanswered after tonight's episode ended. How involved was Ainsley in the Claremont breakout? And you touched on it before, and that's, you know, where I kind of was thinking about this. Why was her number the only one in Friar Pete's cell phone? Did she provide any logistical support? How involved is she supposed to be once Martin was out? Is there a rendezvous? Was she supposed to be part of the Kingston plan? Where are your guesses and theories going? I don't know that she was supposed to be so involved in the breakout, right? They they had the breakout pretty set for a long time. All they were really missing was access to that gold card, which Martin is able to get from Vivian as the as the scene played out in the breakout, right? He he's able to manipulate the situation where she hands over the gold card. That was really the last thing they needed to literally walk out, right? That is the literal golden ticket, the golden swipe card. So I don't know that she was so needed in the breaking out part. I think the fact that she's the only number in the phone it all goes towards the second part of all right, they're out. Now what's the deal? You know, and I think she's supposed to probably have been my guess is my feeling is she was supposed to be a meetup person if not for and we're, we're, we're slowly getting to what I my idea on this whole thing is uh, <laughs> I don't think she was ever supposed to be a rendezvous meetup person for Friar Pete or Hector maybe she was a contact for them to call in case things went you know tits up and and or you know and and needed help in an emergency I mean she does have a job with the news network she does have access to information and probably some actual logistical support things that they could use in a pinch. But again, from we know from Hector, Martin had laid out a very detailed plan. As long as they followed it, they were going to get pretty far along in their, in their escape plan. I think she was meant to be a rendezvous meetup part for Martin, not necessarily for Hector or for uh, Friar Pete. I don't think they were ever really part of the long-term plan. So that that's my guess. And I, and I think we're going to see that. I think there's more to these visits that we got in tonight's flashbacks. I think we only got a little bit of it. I think there's going to be more to the phone calls that it was very interesting to learn. It was Martin initiated. He just, what, randomly, coincidentally called his own office line from when he was, you know, working in the basement. No, he knew what he was doing. He knew he was beginning to groom his daughter. Well, he needs something from her. And I think the after we get out is what he needed from her. What's your feeling? I don't think at any point that the three of them, the the Claremont three, were meant to stay together. Martin's plan was in effect since 1994 
from what we learned in this episode. So I feel that the ultimate rendezvous was going to be between Martin and Ainsley. And part of me did feel that stately Whitley Manor was going to be some part of that plan, which is what you kind of forecasted last episode. And I remain committed to that. I don't think it's necessarily outside the realm of possibility, just where the show could possibly go. But I do think that somehow that um, Martin's office was going to was going to factor into it. And also the fact that Ainsley has access to logistics. Um, I'm thinking like camera, um, the news vans. Right. So they're they're panel, they're private. There's reasons to have news cameras all over the place. Right. So there was like this logistic part of me that was thinking that. So I was interested to see that Hector had made it to Kingston. Uh, I didn't think that that was going to be part of the plan. But yeah, as far as her being involved in the breakout, no, that was well orchestrated and well executed up to a certain point. But I do feel that she was meant to be sort of like the logistics hookup after the point. Here's my theory. I might as well lay it out now as as relates to Friar Pete and to Hector. We've been talking about since last week, why is Martin laying clues out for Jessica and we, we both agree it's going to get back to Malcolm, but we didn't really answer why. Why does Martin lay out the clues through Ainsley about the apple farm? Because we agree, I think, I think we both agree that the idea was because it's going to get back to Malcolm. Again, why? Is it because, like Malcolm says to Vivian at the end of the episode, I thought he wanted me to find him? No. My theory is Martin... It says in his voicemail, and I think we have to remember the voicemail he leaves, I'm not a killer anymore. This is not about murder. This is about family. Malcolm doubles down on that. That's what gets him really in trouble with JT. He doubles down on this idea that my father said that this is not about murder. And whether or not that's true, Malcolm puts forth that Martin thinks it's true. Martin left these breadcrumbs he knows Malcolm. He trusts Malcolm's profiling abilities. If you combine Malcolm's profiling abilities together with sharing a brain with the surgeon, because I'm always in your head, he knows Malcolm's going to be able to track down Friar Pete. He knows that he's going to be able to put the Apple story, the Apple farm together and find Hector. He's leaving clues for Malcolm so Malcolm can round up these two psychopaths and put them down or put them back in prison. Martin doesn't want Friar Pete and Hector out because it's not about murder. He has no vested interest in having, these are just tools for him to get out for his own reasons. He doesn't want Friar Pete to be out and about. He has no loyalty to him. He has no love for him. He's just, it's, it's a goodwill, it's a goodwill gesture why he left these clues for Malcolm because he wants them caught. That's why he knows Malcolm is going to know Hector is going to follow the plan longer. So there's going to be several steps along the way for Malcolm to intercept Friar Pete and Hector or just Hector as it turns out. They're going to need cash fast. They're going to need weapons fast. All right, my apartment. All right, we didn't get them there. All right, the blue saber is abandoned at the at the bodega. All right, we got we got Friar Pete. He's down. All right, there's the apple store. It, you know, it was Martin was leaving breadcrumbs and and waypoints for Malcolm to catch up to the plan. Always, never to catch Martin, never to meet up with Martin. All of the clues he left were specifically for Malcolm to stop 
Hector and Friar Pete, which happens then at the Apple Farm. He's able to finally catch up in real time with Martin's plan while Hector is laying low at the Stevens Apple Orchards. Eliminate the liabilities. I think that's a really good theory. It fits with the idea that Martin sees himself not as a killer and this is not about murder. That, sure, the the ambulance workers were killed violently. Maybe the Apple family, would have, the Apple Orchard family would have been killed. Martin doesn't really care about human life, but he sees it as if I can hand two of the three of us over to the cops and take them off the board, that will buy me time to get going where I need to get going. Plus... You know, I I don't really want these two guys out there. It puts my family in danger having these two psychopaths out there. They know who Jessica is. Martin doesn't want anything bad to happen to Jessica. I don't really think so. No, I don't agree with that. I don't think so. All things being equal, if he had a choice, I think he'd rather something bad not happen to her. Friar Pete and, you know, Friar Pete and Hector know who Malcolm is. They know who Jessica is. They know who Ainsley is. It's in Martin's interest to have them taken off the board and by leaving breadcrumbs for Malcolm to do that, to allow him and his team to catch up, at, up to them at different waypoints along, along the breakout. Why not just leave? Why go up to Kingston to an apple farm? Well, be, uh, apple farm. Well, because it it prolongs Hector's escape. It gives him rest areas that he has to stop at along the way, so Malcolm and Gill and the team and the marshals can can keep playing catch up and eventually get there. And they do, and they and they put Hector down at the farm. Where was the next stop? Who knows? Maybe at the Canadian border. Maybe there was another clue there that Malcolm, because of the crop duster, maybe that was the next step. Was that was they would have been driving to you know the the border up by Niagara or something. Who knows? So let me ask. I think that's all really good sleuthing on your part, and I'm very excited to see how that all plays out because. I got to give you some like respect, like a lot of your theories have come through this season. So I'm just like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit up and take notice when you get, when you drop a theory. So let me ask you, did Martin break out for Ainsley? Like he said, this was all about family all along. So what's changed in the 23 years of him being locked up? Ainsley killing someone and her leaning into it? I think it's a plausible reason for him to break out, not for Ainsley, but maybe to coach her, to to continue in person the lessons that he's now begun in Claremont to take that into the real world. I think there's a large part. Again, you all you have to put yourself into Martin's brain the way Malcolm explained it to JT and the team that angered them so You have to look at it if you're Martin and you believe the bullshit coming out of your mouth the way Martin believes his own bullshit. You know, when people start, you know, getting high on their own supply, you have to kind of put yourself in their position. Martin thinks him being out is the best thing for his family, whether it's because he wants to help Ainsley embrace who she is. There's a there's a part here, the scene, the the very start here. I'm going to play it again. So what can I do? Can I change why would you? Who wants to be average? No, no, no. The trick is to make everyone think you're normal. The idea of oh, should I change? Should I actually be normal? He's like, no, fuck sakes, why? No, you're 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 the you're the apex predator. Be a psychopath, be a sociopath, have no feelings, and just learn how to mimic human emotion. That makes you the best of both worlds. 
if if there's a reason, an actual family reason for him escaping, I think it's maybe to hone those skills to pass on. You know, those are my genes, baby. You know, like the way what he says earlier in the flashback mm-hmm. scene. That's what it is. But I think it's actually more simplistic than that. I think the uh, Martin fantasy that we he has early in the season of climbing through a Shawshank hole and coming into stately Whitley Manor <laughs> and finding Jessica all happy to be there and the family is happy and and reunite. We've seen versions of that twice in Hallucinations this season of the Whitley four being a happy family together. I think that's Martin's goal. I think that Martin really thinks that's a possibility, deluded as it may be. And I think that's the motivation that he's he's working towards here. I I couldn't put my finger on the relationship between Martin going through all the the trouble in 1994 and 1998 of setting up his plan and executing his plan in 1998. I don't know if he thought then that the walls were closing in and he needed to to plan for for what was inevitable. I think maybe he thought in his mind of him being caught and that at some point he's just going to have enough of that and that his family would need him because in his own warped view, he's still a good father, a good provider. The motivation for him to do this now is Ainsley. I'll agree with you that it was to hone her abilities. But at the same time, I'm trying to reconcile how he said this wasn't about murder. So I'm trying to think about it like from a sociopathic kind of a a way, which is a dangerous road for me to go down in terms of wanting to coach Ainsley. So it's not murder for him necessarily, but it's, it's to make Ainsley her true self. And he can't do that in the limitations of Claremont and also having Malcolm in closer proximity to him. In his mind, he doesn't see him breaking out as a bad thing for anybody in in the Whitley family. Ainsley will benefit from him that, you know, he'll be closer to Malcolm. They can work the cases together. You know, him and Jessica will have, you know, martinis and wild sex. I don't know if that's really what's happening on his mind, but it definitely with Ainsley and Malcolm, I feel that he's not thinking that a dangerous 23 time over serial killer out and about walking the streets of Manhattan would necessarily be a bad thing. All of that being said, I would sell my left arm for uh, staying alive, strut down the street, kind of uh, Martin in some kind of like white John Travolta suit. And like, you could tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman, man. Don't talk. You know, just kind of like spinning around, doing some kind of, uh, you know, just I don't know, just to kind of like strut as he's like, free. I want to see him use this beard comb that Christian told us oh about. Oh my God. <laughs> How is that for tantalizing bait there, people? We, we have the beard comb talk in the interview, which is coming up very, very shortly. There's only one thing left to talk about. That's Malcolm versus Vivian. And this is where I think uh, there are two roads in the woods and you and I may diverge. Let's listen to this clip. We're going to start at the very end of the episode and work back a little bit. Quiet. Here we go, darling. We're almost free. Let's start at the end. There's a bit of a Kaiser Soze, if you guys have ever seen Usual Suspects. Uh, there's this idea that the, 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 the suspect that no one would 
think he's got a limp he's 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 very meek he turns out to be the big bad I'm, i know spoilers i'm um you can't spoil a movie that's 25 26 uh, uh, yeah, years old i'm spoiling it was a hella old movie but so kevin spacey turns into kaiser soze and as he's walking away at the end of the movie he goes from his limp meek walk into a very confident strut there's a little bit of that in in vivian as she leaves malcolm in the hospital walking out with her boxes of junk and then she leaves the hospital and she walks to her car, opening her car, throws in a box. As she's doing that, her entire, not that she goes from a limp walk to, to a confident walk, but there is something, there is a shift in her personality once she leaves the hospital in the rain mm-hmm. that completely changes her personality. And it's, I mean, you have to give credit where credit is due to Catherine Data jones is she it's really some masterful acting with just body language here but the question is martin is in the trunk i think everyone will agree it's martin in the trunk who's banging right he hears the door close as she tosses the junk in and then we hear thump 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 and then the clip that i just played now the question is is martin in the trunk by his own volition or not what is your theory no but I have some logistical problems with it. <laughs> I don't think he's there of his own volition because why would he thump on the trunk? Well, uh, well, no, no, you go with your whole theory. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not tipping my hand until you're done. <laughs> my gut tells me that he's not there of his own volition. But the logistical problems that I have with it are if he's not there of his own volition, how would Doctor Capshaw have had the wherewithal, the time, the resources to react to martin's escape so i'm of two minds of it because why would he thump on the car if you if you know does he need to remind her that he's there no i don't think so if if this was voluntary but at the same time if he's there because she like snagged him at the right moment she couldn't get out of the infirmary he took her card he locked the door from the outside because there was like a panic button that he basically locked down the, like they kind of like man trap you in there for a few minutes to, to let things settle down. I don't see how she would have been able to have regrouped in order to get him. So my gut tells me that he's not there of his own volition, but I have some severe doubts as to how he got there. I think it's a master stroke idea on Martin's behalf to break out of Claremont and never get further than the parking lot. Because you know where the cops and the U.S. Marshal Service are not looking for Martin? The parking lot? The parking lot of the goddamn hospital. When Hector says he never even made it to the ambulance. Now, yes, maybe he was waylaid from when he stops to take the breath that we see at the end of last week's episode. And then he begins to run again to wherever the ambulance was. Now, Hector and Fire Pete were, were a decent a bit ahead of him. Maybe he is subdued by her somehow. But yes, she was locked in the infirmary. So how would that have happened? But my feeling is that Martin never intended. Again, the ambulance, the bodega, the bowling alley, the apple farm. Those were the escape plan for Friar Pete and Hector to follow so that Malcolm could capture them and take them down and take them off the board. Martin always had his own separate plan. When she says things like, he used me for everything uh, I had and I'm spent. 
you know, he's going to, I believe in karma, he's going to get everything that's coming to him real soon. Yes, you can clearly take that as she is a woman scorned and or some kind of super fan who has gone round the bend and is now trying to take the surgeon off the board or become like a single white female or or, or some some kind of serial killer herself trying to capture and chain and cage the surgeon. But I think it's just as likely all of those statements could be taken as she was always as I predicted, and, and I listen, I have a vested interest in being right here because I predicted this a while ago. She was always the Bonnie to his Clyde. And the, the very dramatic, you know, uh, you know, don't do this, Martin, screaming on the other sides of the door. We forget there were patients in the infirmary. There were going to be witnesses listening to that exchange. What better way to sell the story? I mean, and she sells the hell out of it. Yeah, when her voice breaks. We, t- we talk about the, the emotion in her voice, the angst, the anger, the screaming, all of that that's wrapped up in that. The betrayal. Right. Not all of those people were going to die of internal, you know, bleeding. So there are going to be witnesses that the police and the marshals are going to talk to. What did you hear? What went on here? What happened at the end? We're going to be like, oh, well, Martin took her card. You know, she was she had freed him to help us. He took the card and he bounced this way locked us in she screamed there was a whole very emotional thing she's going to come out looking at worst like she was duped not a suspect she convinces jessica she is not a suspect she is just a woman to be pitied she convinces malcolm that she was taken in by martin used and left you know spent Malcolm wants to believe that he's projecting the same way he's projecting on the Ainsley, all of his feelings about Martin. He projects onto Vivian, all of his feelings about, uh, about Martin. Martin has never met a person whose life he didn't ruin. So of course the, uh, despite uh, she's not really grilled at all. You're the uh, rational functioning, working adult in this hospital. Last one to see Martin. No one really takes her to task at all. Noah Gill, like uh, he doesn't even throw softballs at her. He asks her no questions. You know, Malcolm is the only one left presumably to question her. And as soon as she says, I freed him, as soon as she admits to a lesser crime, the same way it's the same tactic Ainsley uses confess to the lesser crime that Malcolm already knows or suspects you did. And that way you uh, alleviate yourself of larger suspicion. It's a genius stroke for her to do that. Now, why does she rub the car and take in the rain? Well, maybe she's really psychotically in love with him. There's a great origin story of a villain in Batman. And, and I love the Batman figurine here. I, I'm, I'm laying it all out for you guys. There is the Joker, Batman's arch enemy in in Batman, in the Batman series. He has got a love of his life named Harley Quinn. Harley Quinn was the Joker's therapist in his uh, in Arkham Asylum for the criminally insane. Harley Quinn was a very respectable woman. She was a therapist. She gets taken in by the Joker and falls in love with him. And he eventually pushes her into a vat of, I think it's some kind of poison, something, and disfigures her. But she she emerges from it changed. She is no longer the therapist. She is now criminally insane herself and in love with the Joker. She is so taken over by him and his charisma that she becomes his Bonnie and Clyde ride or die well, partner for life. 
And for the most part, and for most of the canon, they are an inseparable duo of death and destruction. That's what we're seeing here, people. We're seeing Vivian Capshaw is Harley Quinn. Martin is the Joker. Malcolm is Batman. It's what it is. I mean, I love it. I hope this is right because it feels so good. And maybe it's not. Maybe she is just capturing him. Maybe she is going to chain him up for some weird, uh, I can be the surgeon kind of deviant, you know, uh, obsessive fan type type of thing. That's totally plausible. I love this theory because I think it's juicy and delicious and I cannot wait to see it play out. That is a very well thought out theory. We'll have to see how this all plays out. I do wonder, though, if if she is just taken by what Martin's done over the years and learned from him and is just more psychotic than he is. So that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point there are so many question marks because I think it I think it realistically could go either way. I think you could be right. She could be just crazier than Martin, more psychotic than Martin, more dangerous than Martin in a murderous way, and he is a prisoner in the trunk. Why would he thump? Well, my answer to that is he hears the car door open and close. So he thumps as like a signal, like, you know, and then she goes Boop, boop, you know, kind of like call sign, like I'm alive in here still, I'm tapping. Because if he was a prisoner, wouldn't he be screaming? Even if his mouth was tied, wouldn't he be giving some kind of, you know, some kind of, some kind of muffled scream from the trunk? Or would he just be subtly indicating, I've heard the door open and close. I knew at some point she would be removing her shit. Now I thump, thump, thump and let her know. And we move on to our next plan, which involves Ainsley being released by the police because Ainsley's now done her part. She has she has played Malcolm so that she's no longer uh, under suspicion. The same way Vivian played all the right notes. So she's no longer under suspicion. So now you have Martin, his two dames, you know, his his love and his daughter, you know, neither of them under suspicion, above reproach, sympathetic figures. Who better to help him be free? That's my whole theory on what's going on here. And I could be completely wrong, and I probably am, but I really, really like this theory. So, But we're going to give you this theory, and we're going to give you this moment in the sun. Y'all, if I it turns out at the end of next week's episode and I was proved even a little bit right, I will be sitting here doing a little, you know, a little victory dance. But not because I was right, just because I think it's delicious. I think No, you have to do the dance from the trunk. (laughs) I think it's a fantastic twist that you you can't see coming because no one is as devious as Martin. No one is as smart as Martin. If it proves right, if it proves wrong, well, then there is someone smarter than Martin. It's Vivian Capshaw. I think that really takes us to the end of our episode because I don't think we know any more at this point to talk about. So I really like to get you guys to our Christian Borel interview. We've been talking for a super long time now at this point. So listen to our interview with Christian Borel, Friar Pete himself. We're going to come back and talk about next week's episode a little bit. Uh, there is no address corner because there was no Adresa in this episode. So if you guys stay tuned, the Christian Borrell interview is coming up right now. Joining us tonight on The Surgeon Files, we are so excited to have him here, Friar Pete himself. May he rest in peace. Christian Borrell. Christian, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? 
It's my pleasure. I love the name The Surgeon Files. I'm thrilled. We finally got a shout out, a direct name of the podcast in an episode about two weeks ago, and I was feeling pretty good about it. So. Congratulations. Yeah, we, we were feeling the elevation from unofficial to official, but not officially. <laughs> yes, we're, we're, we, we refer to ourselves as the unofficially official podcast for the show. So there you go. Delicious. Noted. So anyone that knows your work, either from TV or from Broadway, I think is probably taken aback by Friar Pete, the character. It's a very different kind of character from what you are typically playing or what we're used to seeing you play. Mm-hmm. Take us through the casting for this role. If there was anything about it that attracted you, how did you come to be Friar Pete? You know what attracted me to it was that it was work during a pandemic. Um, and now Always a was... very good place to start. <laughs> Always a very good place to start. Like <laughs> no, no. It was, it was one of those very happy, rare moments in an actor's life where it was an offer. Part of that may have been because I had experience working with Michael Sheen before on uh, Masters of Sex. Um, I actually played his long-lost brother. And so if he had to sign off on someone, I like to think that maybe he signed off on me because he didn't have a terrible time working with me on that. Uh, Family connection. And there you go. So That's right. Um, But the rest was, I don't know what they saw in my crazy dead eyes that made them think I would be right for Friar Pete. I didn't ask. Sometimes it's best not to delve into those things. Well, there's a charisma. So I think the through line is there is a charisma about you that comes through all of your roles that I think Friar Pete has in a psychopathic way. I mm-hmm. I liked Friar Pete. I found myself oh, kind yeah, of, I, I, I found him psychopathically charming. If, oh, good. Not, if not, if not a little terrifying, um, <laughs> you know, but so I think there was a, definitely a charisma role there. I was like, yeah, I see, I see it. It's just so different. I mean, I think of you like, you know, Tom and smash or in spam a lot, you know, like I, I think yeah. of those kinds of things, you know, not, I understand why. No, it was a really nice, I was flattered and excited to play something different. Obviously, and of course, your mind automatically goes to Silence of the Lambsy type serial killer stuff. I didn't do like any journaling about Friar Pete, but I had a sense that this guy was just a fraud, that deep down he was using this persona as a way to uh, escape any kind of accountability, if you know what I mean. That to be thought of as a psychopath in a, in a, a ward would be better than being stuck in Gen Pop in some prison if that makes any sense. And maybe the writers had a totally different idea and I blew it and that's why they killed me off. We may never know. (laughs) (laughs) How do you prepare for that kind of a role? It seems that researching like a psychopathic murderous friar with the religious fervor might be a very specific kind of Google search. And Mike tells me all the time that I'm going to get into trouble for the things that I research on Google. Yes. So I'm just wondering. He's what right, more... by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I learned about privacy mode. Oh, good. Good. I hope not too late. I don't do a lot of research. I am not a method actor. I just kind of like wing it with an idea and so i got there on day one and you know they put shackles on me and (laughs) uh, that does half the work for you and the lines were very fun and and off kilter and uh sociopathic in and of themselves so you just kind of like i decided to just kind of glaze a little bit in that kind of uh generic general serial killer look 
the dead eyes. I think I think you said it perfectly. No, it helped that I I think he is performing. I think Friar Pete is performing. So part of it was I felt okay performing the part, if that makes sense. When you signed on for the season and you were announced, I mean, I think going back to maybe November or December that you were going to appear in the season. Mm-hmm. Did you have an idea of what the arc was when you signed up? You knew it was going to be three, four episodes like this, or was it kind of unfolding as you got a script and you know you were because you were in the first couple episodes and we didn't see you for a while and then you were back again yeah i got the first few and that was it and then i got the happy email a couple of months ago that they wanted me for a couple or a few and then as the newer scripts kind of came in uh, what i thought was so entertaining was that they just kept throwing more and more ridiculous stuff at me to do, which of course I was thrilled to be able to do because you want to do crazy stuff. I mean, you did get to walk Malcolm through an uh, an exorcism over the phone, (laughs) which is fun for anyone to do. I mean, so bizarre. It's so, it's a really intimidating thing to do because obviously when you think of like The Exorcist, which is one of my favorite movies of all time and one of the greatest horror movies of all time, and suddenly you're stuck having to do an impromptu exorcism over the phone. It's all you can think about is living up to expectations. Um, But it was really fun to do. And I got to use my sixth grade Latin skills. That was literally going to be my next follow-up was, uh, did you ever take Latin before? And did it come in handy then? (laughs) I was part of the Latin club in sixth through eighth grade. Mrs. Schneider, I feel like, would have been very proud of me. I hope she's still around to enjoy it. I feel like you should track her down and send her like a thank you, like an edible arrangement or something. (laughs) But write it in Latin. Definitely write it in Latin. Yes. Or just send her the lines from the episode and she'll be terrified. She'll be like, good lord, Christian, what happened to you? You were such a good boy. Starting to feel a little Jared Leto. (laughs) Oh, yes. Very much so. Very much so. You know, we spoke to Michael Potts a few weeks ago. Yes. uh, Another kind of theater legend like yourself. And and we talked to him about the challenge of coming into an established show, uh, being an important guest arc, having an important role, but walking into this thing that already exists and is breathing, adding COVID protocols on that. How how is that for you coming into this series? I mean, you you do plenty of guest spots on TV shows. That's old hat for you, I'd imagine. But with the COVID protocols, did it affect the experience or your normal process for walking into an established show? It didn't. My normal process is just to show up and be very, very prepared so that you are not the squeaky wheel in an established machine, you know? And then you throw the COVID protocols on it. It was very easy, actually, because they were so on the ball and you had to do things a certain way and you had to kind of retreat to your station after every moment. And so I just bring a good book and be ready and caffeinated for when they say go. And then they come up to you with a little plastic clamshell that you stick your mask in and you do a little burst of overacting and then head back to your book. (laughs) Um, And they were, they're also pleasant. Like it's not only a well-oiled machine, but it's like a happy machine. Everybody there was in in good spirits and obviously feeling very grateful to be able to work because, you know, the, the show that I was doing, Little Shop of Horrors, shut down on March 12th off Broadway. Mm-hmm. We thought we'd be back in a couple of weeks. How naive we were. How, how young we all were. Summer, <laughs> summer children, all of us. Yes. And so I think there's a great sense of gratitude happening and um, everyone just working really hard because they know how lucky they are in this particular moment in time to have uh, good work. What was it like working back with Michael again? <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I wasn't ready for the beard. And the beard does all the work, as anyone who has a full beard will tell you. And he is just 
great. He's I'm such a fan, so I have to like tuck that aside. Yeah. And I get shy, so I just kind of like showed up and he recognized me from Masters of Sex, which made me feel good. And then he's also just super prepared and has obviously the brunt of the material and uh he just every single take just knocks it out of the park and gives everything a different spin and while also remaining consistent and then he just retreats to his book and so it worked out very well I went to South by in 2019 for Good Omens. And if you've seen the show, he's very clean shaven. He's very, you know, he's like baby faced, you know, and he he shows up the red carpet with this crazy person beard. And I remember looking at like my chart. I was like, I bet. Is that Michael Sheen? Like, what is happening? I was like, have I been following the wrong person? Did I not watch the show correctly? I was very confused. And then I realized, like, six months later, Prodigal Sin comes out. I was like, oh, okay, that all makes sense then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was intense. It's such a good look. My favorite part of, like, right before, like, Last Looks, the last thing he would do, they gave him a special little beard brush, and he would just kind of stand there brushing out this luscious thing. It was hilarious. Now, you were rocking quite the goatee and, and, and fear beard scrubble, but I, I think of you mostly as clean-shaven. Is this a COVID look for you with the facial hair? Or I'll go facial hair when I'm not working. And then, yes, certainly it was a COVID, you know, and we were all experimenting with horrible looks. Um, and, yeah, they thought they wanted to keep a little bit of the goatee. They thought it, it was more sinister. More facial hair, more sweatpants. That's been my mantra for the last year. So, <laughs> yes. And have you had great success? I still have here. I'm still wearing sweatpants. I'm still wearing a beard. So, you know, it's great. I'm living my best life. So. I'm proud of you. <laughs> so I'm not sure if you saw the final cut for tonight's episode. I have not. Oh, so Friar Pete's death is quite visceral. It's quite a departure from what they usually show on network TV. Very graphic. Huh. Can you talk to us about what it was like filming those scenes in the bowling alley? It was really fun. It was, first of all, the coolest retro bowling alley in the Bronx with no, like, electronic scoring. It was truly like walking into the past. It looked and the good. color scheme was gorgeous. It was That was, like, the bowling alley. They didn't do any set dressing on it. That I know of, I think it was just that classic place. You know, it was a fun scene to chew into. I got to do my, um, my Gary Ullman from the professional acting beat where <laughs> that every actor wants to do, which is that you're talking and you're talking and then you scream and then you talk. Now I feel like Catherine O'Hara from Waiting for Guffman. But then, of course, is the, the bowling aspect of it. And I haven't bowled in a year and I totally screwed that up. And then I get to uh, do this stunt that they presented to me as the stunt coordinator, who was so nice came up to me and he said i don't you know a lot of actors when they get shot on screen they flail their arms and they do the thing and he was like we just want you to drop like what happens with the headshot is that your entire nervous system shuts down instantaneously and you just drop to the floor and so they put down mats looks like a sack of potatoes going down yes i'm so excited so nailed it Yay. And I got a little, like, we did it over and over again, obviously. And my uh, neck the next couple of days was really from, like, having to whip back from pretending to be shot in the head and then collapsing on myself. I was a little sore, but it was worth it. You also have to make sure you're not, like, you know, landing your head in the gutter. You don't want to go out with a gutter head, you know, one of those kinds of things. Gutter head. Gutter head. (laughs) I'm I'm glad it it, uh, came out good. I can't wait to see it. It, it looks phenomenal. Oh, good, good, yeah, good. It does. 
So Friar Pete has this really explosive energy about him that you talked about, you know, where he's, you know, very monotone and then he has this explosive rage. So is there any special preparation that you go through when you need to do this upshift in energy from, you know, quietly throwing the bowling ball to he was furious monologue that Pete delivers to Malcolm? What's that process like? This is a master class in acting that we're asking yeah. you to do today. So, well, listen, I've been studying you since Spamalot, so. <laughs> I use the same technique as I used in Spamalot, which is I just modulate uh, as necessary. No, I, you know, I, the, the thing about that furious line is that it was just one of those things in the script. It was in italics. And I really did think of Gary Oldman and I talked to the director and I was like, I just want to try this thing. And if it's too big or if it's not working, let me know. I jumped a mile. I'll tell you that. Oh, all right. Yeah. I imagine, I imagine Tom Payne needed to excuse himself to go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, after I got, well that. That, it was, it was quite loud and out of nowhere, you know, it was, yeah, yeah it was, it was great. And there's, and, there, and it's framed with three bottles of wine and bowling alley wine is the classiest of the wines. Surprise it wasn't in a box. Yes. Three <laughs> bottles of Bronx bowling alley wine is about the height of uh, living. So you know what's so funny about that? Did you guys watch the haunting of Bly Manor? Yes. Yes. Um, I was a huge uh, haunting of Hill House fan, and then Bly Manor happened, and I, the, the, it's a great troupe. I liked it less than than Hill House, but Same. Same. we were watching it, and I was so we were laughing out loud, my girlfriend and I, at when they would sit around the campfire drinking bottles of wine out of the bottle, and I was like, like they had a crate. Of and they were all drinking wine out of the bottle as if this was like a ritual, and I was like, "Who drinks wine out of a bottle?" Like I've literally, unless it's a joke, never seen anyone do that. And then I find myself on the set of Prodigal Son, <laughs> and they have wine bottles out, and I'm like, "I guess I'm doing this." That's called go. karma. That's yes, wine karma, wine karma. And it was because TV is so fancy—the most delicious grape juice you've ever had. Well, I mean, a chaste man like Friar Pete obviously is going to. He's going to have to ease back in. Drink, yeah. I mean, he can't go full full sacraments, you know, on your first day back. So <laughs> there yeah, was, by the way, for a while. <laughs> there was a scene that got cut out of episode ten, I think, where Friar Pete and um, another one of his cohorts is threatening Martin with castration. If he doesn't get on board, mm-hmm. Friar Pete says, I've done it myself, and it's actually quite liberating. And I'm really disappointed that they cut it, because I like the idea of that. <laughs> you like, the, like the, the director's cut edition of Prodigal yes. Son with all the deleted scenes. Yes. As an actor, I imagine it's just a fun thing to do. There's a scene in the, where you're confronting... Malcolm, Friar Pete's confronting Malcolm and says, don't come any further. And then you pull up your shirt and you show the gun, one of the antique pistols you've got, like, shoved in, like, your jeans. Which, mm-hmm. bowling must have been difficult with a gun tucked in your pants like that. <laughs> yes, it was but, not easy. But it's such, like, it's such, like, a great, like, Kenneth Branagh kind of, like, look at my gun, I got in my pants kind of moment. Is it, do, you, do you love what that? Kenneth Branagh movies are you watching? <laughs> I, home movies, home movie stuff that he shoots on. <laughs> that explains it. Real bootleg stuff. I'll it's, never forget when he did that in the four-hour cut of Hamlet. <laughs> oh, my that Lord. was in the extended cut. <laughs> um, but go on. Finish your point. I'm sorry. But no, it's such a large kind of moment. It's so fun seeming to do. Do you get a charge out of doing those kinds of things? Like, I mean, like what else are you going to, in your life, get to pull up your shirt and show a gun that you've got tucked in your pants? It's true. I, You know, I'm of two minds about it because growing up as a kid... 
I played guns, you know what I mean? Like it was still, I grew up in like the early eighties Sure. and we ran around our neighborhood. I had a backpack full of like hyper realistic looking guns, which mm-hmm. is crazy to think about. And it's fine. Like it's a phase that boys and girls go through when they play war. Yeah. And the eighties was also a different time. Like you could <laughs> do that. Like I grew up in Queens, the same thing, running around on my bike with guns like strapped to my right. back. And yeah. And sure. obviously that doesn't happen anymore for good reason. But so there's a part of me that like that is taps into that play thing but then the adult part of me is has like a gun tucked into my pants and it's it's really weird and those are real guns and every time the prop guy would hand me a gun he would you know open the chamber and show me the clip so that everyone knew that it was not loaded and there's you know obviously safety protocols very strict that go along with it that but so it was it was weird like it was cool to kind of like play act as a psychopath with a gun but then here i am uh, as a person, very anti-gun, and so it, it was a weird mixture. Tonight was actually a great lesson in Friar Pete backstory. We learned that he's, in fact, not from the Middle Ages, but rather from Pittsburgh. Uh, <laughs> and so is Christian Laurel. Uh, was that just a happy coincidence? Are there other parts of you hidden in Friar Pete that you discovered as you went through the character? I I like to think that's the only thing we have in common. <laughs> um, no, I think that was just a happy accident, or maybe some nice writer did some google work and thought it would be fun to uh to let me be from pittsburgh but uh, i miss pittsburgh very much it was a sweet detail our listeners really love behind the scenes information so tell us is there any particular moment or memory from the set that stands out for you as a favorite one of the really fun i hope i'm not telling tales out of school which is the I, love best when everyone giggles. <laughs> I love when they giggle when they start to say it <laughs> One of my the great joys of these last few episodes was getting to meet and work with Catherine Zeta Jones, um, who was so uh, down to earth and fun to work with and really focused. We had a really good time together. But I hope I'm not revealing anything terrible. She really um, has a phobia about rats. <laughs> <laughs> Bella, we had Bellamy on last week, uh, Bellamy Young on last week, and she spilled the tea already on that. <laughs> okay, good. All right. Good, good, good. They had to be called jelly beans or something. Correct, <laughs> which is adorable <laughs> when you think about it. So I got to meet the jelly beans and the jelly bean wrangler. I was really excited. My father was um, a, a professor of physiology at the University of Pittsburgh, and he did um, he did a lot of lab work, and they did experiments on rats. I hate to say it, but he would bond with these rats. He loved rats. He always said they were the smartest animals, and he had a couple as pets, and so I felt some kind of like ancestral kinship with these little jelly beans, and I finally got to meet them, and they were so cute and they flocked to me there were seven of them and they we bonded and the wrangler said they like you and i was so delighted so i'm taking there really wasn't rat poison then in your pocket they put like rat nip in your in your robe that's right that's right <laughs> but catherine was really um we had to make sure that the set was covered that the I even had a dead rat uh, prop Mm-hmm. And that had to be covered with a blanket. And we had to, like, play with eye lines so that she didn't see the rats at all. And then she joked about it later. She was like, I can't even watch Ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it's a squirrel underneath the chef's hat in that movie. <laughs> you know, not a rat. <laughs> yes. Yes. Tell yourself whatever you need. It's just a really active toupee. That's all it is. <laughs> um, but that was, uh, as far as, like, behind-the-scenes stuff, it was really... Um, not much else to tell. 
I really enjoyed watching how they pulled off, you know, there's that body basically crucified in the ball return in the bowling alley and the guy with the piece of like filament pulling the ball up against that poor guy's head. That was not like a mannequin. That was a sweet guy who had to be in makeup all day. And then just lie down in that ball return. Which doesn't look like the most comfortable places to hang out for the day. No, no. But I don't have any other delicious tea from behind the scenes, I'm afraid. That's okay. That's pretty good tea. That is pretty good tea. And also, you know, once is a rumor and twice now we've confirmed it. So Mm. there were jelly beans all over the set at Prodigal Sun. That's That's all we need to know. Now, I know you got into directing theater a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is is and with all the TV that you do, is that something that you think you'd want to get into down the road? Just kind of go behind the lens a little bit. I mean, that's such a fancy transition. I think it's um, you're a fancy man, Christian. I think we all can agree uh, that I saw the the wine bottles. <laughs> you know, I've been doing theater since high school, basically, and then going to school for it and then doing it for the last several decades. It's one thing to understand the mechanics of directing theater. Um, I can't say that I fully do, but I have a better sense of like how it works. But directing TV is still to me just a little bit. Uh, I don't get it. I admire the people who do it well and fast. And uh, it's really quite an undertaking. And I, I can't quite claim to understand it yet. I guess the idea of putting a, a, like a theater show up in eight days and then tearing it down would be daunting. Yeah. 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 But it's still just like being in a rehearsal room and everyone dances around and then you say, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. All right. Good job, guys. We're ready. Uh, so I made an admittedly empty promise to myself that I wasn't going to fanboy about Smash. But here we are. The, we last saw the cast about three weeks shy of a year ago. About It was May, late May last year. There was a reunion live stream concert for Actors Fun, mm. I believe. Mm-hmm. So many years later, how do you feel about your time as Tom Levitt on Smash? And why do you think Smash has continued to endure with its fans there? I mean, it's been off the air for eight years going on and people still love it. I still love it. So I'm really asking for myself, Christian. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it, too. I have so many thoughts about Smash. We have plenty of time. As long as as much time as you have, we have. So. <laughs> That's very sweet. Thanks for letting me babble on. What I find fascinating about it when I kind of do a little like mind exercise is that I think it was just if it had come out a few years later when you could be more niche in the streaming services, it would have stood more of a chance. But it was like right on the tail end of that like network paradigm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where it needed better numbers to survive. But the numbers by today's standards, I think it would be considered a great hit, you know? Yep, no, for sure. But I think people respond. I think the cast was phenomenal. I think the ambition of it was exciting. I thought it had a little bit of camp value in terms of the the sweet details about theater that it got so clearly wrong that people like to nitpick about, including myself, you know, it's like a daily struggle to understand like the necessity of television and, and that kind of serial storytelling and also trying to get the details of theater. Right. And I think again, if we could go back and never say never, I I think there's room for smash. I, I really, I daydream about them kind of getting the band back together and doing like the, the real, detail-oriented show about theater because there's so much drama behind the scenes in theater that I think went untapped. Like the stories that I alone have to tell that are 10 times more dramatic than anything that happened on Smash, I think it's ripe for the plucking. We shall see. 
I find myself thinking about fame a lot, and I and I always wondered why it's never been like remade as a TV show now. Because I think the same kind of behind the scenes look at you know how theater kids are made and music nerds are made. I think <laughs> yes. the same thing, you know, like taking Chorus Line and 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 putting it into like a television show would be kind of like Smash, you know. And I think as a TV show, I agree with you. There's always talk of Bob Greenblatt and Steven Spielberg still trying to put it up on Broadway. They made a big announcement about it last year, right after the reunion concert, if I remember. Is that a thing? Is there any tea you could spill on that that we uh, or scoop? Um, that is a thing. They announced the book writers, um, and they are Rick Ellis, who's my pal who wrote Peter and the Starcatcher. Oh, nice. And um, Bob Martin, um, who wrote Jazzy Chaperone and The Prom and a great number of amazing things. And they're collaborating together on that book. I do know the details about it. Mm. I'm very excited about it. Can we hit hit stop record? (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're excited about it. And I think um, Smash fans will be excited about it, too. Uh, They had to. um, They're being very smart. Uh, about it and clever but not in an overthinking way and that's pretty much all i can say about it but we shall see how it manifests itself and of course it doesn't hurt to have steven spielberg doing his first theatrical show he's a pretty well-known name so putting him into broadway seems like a kind of a surefire it's helpful did you see the west side story trailer i did i did i know between that and in the heights we're going to be very spoiled yes they I'm getting my great. credit card ready. I'm getting my credit card ready for all the different things that are being opened up and I can go back to. So Yes. And he really, I, I think they want it to be a theatrical experience, which is why they it was supposed to come out last December. But it was not the right time because right. they want to truly have people um, have the theatrical experience with it. So right. uh, once Broadway opens back up, what's a show that you're looking forward to seeing? And are you giving us any scoop here on any return to the stage for you? I Right as things were shutting down, I was doing Little Shop of Horrors off-Broadway, and it was one of the happiest theatrical experiences I've ever had. A little 300-seat theater, great cast, perfect show. And they are committed to coming back as soon as theater comes back. So my Yay. big plan is, as soon as we get the go-ahead, I'll be going back into that. And then I have a couple little things on the horizon that I can't talk about, which seem fun for maybe next year. I'm writing a musical. <gasps> That's fantastic. Which um, hopefully, you know, these are, it takes years to develop, but we're tiptoeing through that. As far as shows that I want to see again, I really want to see six when we get back. They were about to have their opening night on March 12th, Mm -hmm. and that got just ripped away from them, those poor people. And basically just anything. I I just want to get back into a theater. I feel the same way. Same. I, I I sit and I stare at like Times Square all the time. I'm like, I miss it. I miss it so much. Take it's my so money. bleak right now, but it'll be back. Before we let you go, if you wanted to take a minute, uh, I saw that you're going to be participating in the 2021 Broadway Teachers Workshop. It's an online series of workshops scheduled for the middle of July. Well, what can you tell us about that? Yes, you're so sweet to bring that up. Um, my dear friend Pam Pariso and her partner Gordon Greenberg run this amazing program. I've talked to groups before, and it's uh, mostly I've just spoken to groups of theater teachers um, because they are so important. They were so important in my life and in so many young people's lives. And this particular time, I'm going to speak to, I think, in front of teachers, I'm going to have like a little coaching session with some young people on like audition material and just kind of like talk about what 
I, my experience was coming up and auditioning and what my experience is now kind of sometimes being on the other side of the table and what I look for in young people auditioning. And I think what's so funny about coaching kids is that they so often, you know, when you're in high school, you always play like adults and old people, which is fun. But then when you get out into the real world, you have to play your own age. And so the struggle is to kind of get kids to do material that is age appropriate. But like watching a 13 year old girl sing Send in the Clowns is like one of the highlights of my life. (laughs) (laughs) It's like she really understands. (laughs) She gets it. She's lived. (laughs) This girl has lived. But so thanks for plugging that. I go through it all the time with my son. We're looking for audition songs for this or that. Like he's doing a he's doing a production of Young Frankenstein. He's in the swing chorus and the fun in the ensemble. There are songs in there he should not be watching or listening to. You know, <laughs> yes. we're doing audition songs for it. I feel like I don't know. You want to do like Touch Me, Touch Me, Touch Me from like I don't know Rocky Horror? Let's go for it. Whatever. <laughs> what, can, what can Child Protective Services do? Who's gonna know? It's cool. Yes. And at the same time, there's only so many times you can listen to the score of Thirteen, which is very good. Which is great. And and don't think we haven't been through with that in Adam's family. I mean, he knows every song that Pugsley sings in from the Adam's family, you know, Broadway album. Yes. So there you go. Christian, you've been so gracious with your time. Thanks for coming on and talking to us about Friar Pete and talking about Broadway. We love it so much. It's my pleasure. Great to talk to you both. And I'm so thank you for your feedback about this last episode. I'm so I can't watch myself. I get sweaty. I was watching like the first couple episodes. So my girlfriend was sitting next to me, and as soon as I came on, my temperature rose about 10 degrees, and she was oh. holding her hand above my head. She was like, you are burning up right now. <laughs> I just have a really, real. I'm sweating at the pits right now talking about it. <laughs> so thank you for giving me the skinny on it. Yeah, it's almost unfortunate. I mean, it's a really high note that he goes out on, which just leaves you wanting more. And you like, you wish that maybe he can come back as like a fire peak ghost or something. So, ah, wouldn't that be nice? We'll or see. maybe a flashback. Yeah, your neck pain was definitely worth the effort that uh, that the output looks like. How wonderful! And your chiropractor agrees. Yeah. So, <laughs> guys, thanks so much for listening, and Christian, thanks so much for your time. And hopefully, we'll get to talk to you. Uh, we're launching actually a Broadway podcast, a Broadway news podcast, in uh, actually just a few weeks here at Pod Clubhouse. So, oh, maybe, cool. maybe we'll get to have you on again in that capacity down the you road. You know where to find me. Oh, we do, we do, we do, sir. <laughs> in the Bronx, drinking wine in the bowling alley. We got you. Oh no, I'm going to be seeing him at Little Shop of Horrors real soon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'll be. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. <laughs> I can't wait. Take care, Christian. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. A big thank you to Christian for hanging out. I am pretty sure we kept him probably for double the length of time that he was supposed to stay on with us. Uh, what did you think of that interview? Is that uh, you're a theater person? Uh, what did you think of that? He's just so much fun to talk to. I, I definitely hope to to catch him on Broadway and maybe a little bit off Broadway as well. Maybe around the corner at uh, like the Russian Tea Room or something for a drink or at Sardi's or something fun. <laughs> oh, we got a couple of like singing uh, little. I know, I know. I love Little Shop. I'm a big, big, big fan. Suddenly, Simon. Go on, go on. Got to wrap this up. All right. So there's no Adresa tonight, which you know I would have loved to have gotten her real time reaction to Martin being on the lamb, and I think she would have been so good here. But I understand there's a lot of characters in these episodes, and so something has to give. But I always miss when we don't get some Adresa on the screen. Did you? Did you feel her loss tonight a little bit? 
I did, but I also didn't know how her disarming humor would have worked with the the timber of this episode. This was really emotionally, you know, ratcheted up to to 11 to 12, really. I just don't know if her, I don't know if her brand of humor would have worked. Like Ruiz was enough for me. (laughs) Uh, And listen, there's, uh, I mean, you have... Christian Borle, you have Catherine Zeta Jones, you've got uh, you've got Agent Ruiz, uh, Ms. Castillo, uh, April Hernandez Castillo. You know, so you have a lot of guest stars already appearing in this episode. There's a lot of moving parts here. Some storylines always have to get sacrificed. So, but uh, hopefully, we'll see Adrisa for the last two hours of the season. Can you believe we're down to the final two hours next week? Penultimate episode of the season. I can't. They better come out with a renewal so that this way, you know, my heart can rest. Because every time I'm watching one of these episodes now, I'm like, this can't be the end. There's so much more story to tell. The last thing we need to talk about, next week's episode. If you don't want to hear anything about it, we're going to give you the name. We're going to give you the official logline description. If you don't want to hear anything about it, well, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. But if you do want to hear the preview for next week, here it is. Next week's episode is called Sun and Fun, the episode description. And again, spoiler warnings, if you consider logline descriptions of episodes, uh, spoilers, you know, we're about to say them. As the search intensifies for a serial killer on the run, so does Malcolm's tenacity, causing U.S. Marshal Emily Ruiz, guest star April Hernandez Castillo returning, to kick him off the case. However, Malcolm doesn't back down that easily. Now, I think it was only a matter of time before Malcolm, at least officially, was removed from the case. I'm surprised it didn't happen tonight. Sounds like it's going to happen next week. But sun and fun, I don't know. Maybe that sounds like someone recommending uh, Malcolm take a vacation. Oh, we know how well that worked out for him the last time. Uh, Malcolm, don't do vacation. So, no, no, no. That's when Gil's car got... Was that Gil's car or when the... Where he, where he shoots the antique gun out the window and drops onto Gil's car. Gil's car, that was, yes, because he's in the white suit. Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes That yes. was his vacation. That see, was supposed to be white suits. I wasn't even thinking about that. But see, we we could get our uh, staying alive uh, montage, BG's montage. For and Martin. I said, you know, your theory gets this moment in the sun, sun and fun. Here we uh, go. See, see, see. I hear it. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to The Surgeon's Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Sun podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic. Or else we're going to have to take you to a bowling alley in the Bronx and drink (laughs) red wine out of a bottle with you. And trust me, folks, you don't want bowling alley wine. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.